Some of you thought because the answer was delayed, it had been denied, but God's delays are not his denials, and God is at work, and God does impossible things, and if nothing else, he sent you here today or has you watching online today because he wants you to know he, he's still at work. The answer's still on the way. Let faith rise in your heart and believe that God who does the impossible will do the impossible for you. The message this morning is for those who maybe feel like God has forgotten you. Like he's answered other people's prayers, but you feel like he hasn't answered yours. And invariably what happens is when people have that is, there's a couple of things that can happen. First of all, they can begin to second guess themselves and to wonder if there's something wrong with the way they're serving the Lord. After all, why would God answer somebody else's prayers and not answer their prayer. A second thing that happens, and I think is probably the more dangerous thing spiritually, is that the answer didn't come, disappointment set in, and because the disappointment wasn't addressed in an appropriate way spiritually, Unbelief is set into your heart. It's not necessarily that you don't believe in God, and it's not necessarily that you don't believe what God is doing around you. It's just there's unbelief relative to whether God's going to work in your situation, and you find yourself more often than not saying, I doubt it, I don't know, maybe, instead of having a faith-filled response to the circumstances of your own life, and even to the prayers that you or other people pray. And if that's where you're at, I just want to say that you're not alone on that first Christmas. There was a couple that I think had a lot of those same kinds of questions that you might be having today. We meet them in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. His name means God remembers. Her name means God is faithful. So you have this couple, and their names really form a setup for what we're going to see happen in their life. And we're going to see that at the end, their names are actually speaking the whole truth, not only in general, but in their life in specific. That God remembers. That God is faithful. That even when maybe they thought that wasn't the case at all, they ended up finding out that, no, God is faithful, and he does remember. Zechariah is a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses, and every priest was descended from Aaron. Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, which means that her father was a priest, her uncles were priests, her grandfather was a priest, and what the priests would do is they would minister at the temple and they would teach the people. Historians tell us, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that at the time of Luke's writing of the gospel, that there were around 20,000 priests in, in the land of Israel at that time. And 
because all of them couldn't minister at the temple simultaneously, they would be divided into 24 divisions. And every two weeks, a new division would serve there at the temple. So there would be approximately, you know, 1,800, 2,000 uh, priests in a division, and they would serve at the temple for a couple of weeks. And that is what happens with Zechariah. We read on in verse 6, it says this, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. So Luke adds this because, as we're going to see in a moment, there were circumstances to their life that in that day would have made people question, I wonder what's wrong with Zechariah and Elizabeth. I wonder why God hasn't answered their prayers. I wonder why they're in the situation they're in. And so Luke right away lets us know that no matter what people thought, they were upright in God's sight, and that's really all that matters. Not only were they upright, but they lived outwardly the commandments, but inwardly they were serving him with all of their heart. The problem is told for us in verse 7. It says, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. That doesn't mean much to us, but in that day, one of the worst stigmas that a Jewish woman could have would be to be married and be childless. People would wonder why didn't have the blessing of children. Why hadn't God answered their prayer? And especially with them serving as priests, people would think they look fine on the outside. But I wonder what's going on inside. And so God sets the record straight and says they were blameless in his sight. They were upright in his sight. Would you notice also it says they were both well along in years. We have a tendency to read that and to think, well, they must have been in their 70s, their 80s. I mean, who knows? But actually, in that particular time, at the time of Christ, the average life expectancy was 35 years old. So probably, and we know this from, from uh, Numbers chapter 8 and verse 25. We won't look at it, but it says there that priests could serve from the age of 20 to the age of 50, and at 50 they had to retire, and they could no longer perform the temple uh, ceremonies. They could assist, but they couldn't do them. So we know that Zechariah is not yet 50 years old, which in that day, again, if the average life expectancy is 35, he's in his late 40s. So if you're in your late 40s, you're well along in your years. So especially in that day. And people would be wondering about this condition of her being barren. And what the scripture wants us to understand is it's not a result of divine punishment. It has everything to do with divine planning. But sometimes we don't, we don't understand. We, we, we can't see what God is doing. And so either we think he's doing nothing or we think he's abandoned us when in fact, neither of those things are the truth. God is at work even when we can't see him working. And this is the case for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse eight, we read this. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, 
So here he is, he's serving, and it would be a week where, where primarily he would be preparing the burnt offerings, and there would be thousands of animals slaughtered on any given week at the temple. So he would be busy doing that with the other priests, and in the midst of that, something really wonderful happened. Verse 9, it says, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, let me, let me help us understand that a little bit. First of all, when we're talking about lots, we're talking about there would be uh, Urim and Thummim, which scholars aren't completely clear on that, but it, most scholars believe it's like two sticks with markings on them. They would be carried in the uh, breast piece of the high priest's garment. They would be used as a yes and no type way of discerning the will of the Lord. And God had established this way back during the time of Moses, that this would be a way for the priest to discern God's will. So what would happen is it would be, are you choosing this division of the priest? Like he was in Abijah, yes or no. Are you choosing this particular, there'd be several families in that division. Are you choosing this family, yes or no? So eventually it comes down to he is chosen through this process and given the honor of burning incense in the temple. It would be a huge honor. In fact, uh, it, was, it was the kind of honor that, that if you're ever chosen once, you never got to do it again. In fact, let me just kind of explain, take it a, a step further, bring a couple pictures here to help you. This is the, uh, a model of the temple at the time of Jesus. So today, if you go to Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock is right here. That's where it sets on top of what was the Jewish temple. This platform is 15 football fields in size. At the time, it was built by Herod the Great. It was the largest man-made plateau in the world. The building itself was beautiful, made of white marble. Herodotus, the historian, said he who has not seen the Jewish temple has not seen a beautiful building. So in the evening, I mean, the sun setting, you could be on the Mount of Olives looking down over it. It was stunning. It was gilded in gold. It was a very beautiful building. What you have to understand is when it says Jesus was teaching in the temple, though this is the temple proper, Jesus never went in there. Nobody went in there except priests. If Jesus is teaching in the temple, it's talking about this whole area. So there would be crowds coming in, thousands of people coming in, and Jesus would be teaching in the temple area. When it talks about Solomon's colonnade, it would be this area here. So in the winter, in the rainy time, he might be teaching in the covered area. You'll see that in John chapter 10. So it, you never went. Nobody, no Jew, average Jewish person went into the temple. In fact, what this is called is this is called the court of the Gentiles. So Gentiles could come up onto the Temple Mount, but there was a little stone uh, barrier around the temple proper, and on these stones was inscribed, if you are a Gentile and you cross this line, you'll be killed. So no Gentiles allowed to go beyond there. This is the court of women. 
And so this area would be where the widow gave her might. It's where Jesus went in there and was watching people. It's where people gave their offerings. Uh, bring up another uh, diagram here. So here's the court of women. Um, here is the court of Israel and an area called the court of priests. Here would be where the altar for the burnt offerings would be. And uh, then there would be uh, you know, areas for the priests to prepare the burnt offerings. So this is the temple right here. The temple is divided into two rooms. There is the holy place, and then behind a very large curtain in the back was the most holy place. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt. The high priest went there once a year and only after, after offering sacrifices for his sin and the sin of the people. If he went there any other time, he would be killed. He would be struck down. So what God had commanded is that there would be a morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice, where a lamb would be offered at nine in the morning and then again at three in the afternoon. And what would happen is the priest chosen by Lot, so this would be Zechariah, he would go over to the altar, he would get some hot coals, he would put them into a golden pan, he would then go in giant doors of the temple, he would go across the holy place to right in front of the curtain was the altar of incense, he would put the hot coals on the altar, then he would sprinkle incense and smoke would rise up, symbolic of the prayers of the people. As he is going in there, he's never been in that room in his life. I mean, this is a huge honor. Not every priest got to do it. He was chosen by Lot. So, I mean, it's the end of his ministry. He's, he's considered an old man. And now at the end of his ministry, he's getting to go in there. He's getting to offer it. It would look something like this. Um, so he goes across the pavement. There's the big curtain. Remember when Jesus died, the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom, not the bottom to the top. It's not as if man were tearing it open, but God himself tearing it open. And now we all can go into the most holy place because of Jesus. We can all go boldly before his throne. But the priest is going there. Zachariah is going there. And as he goes there, verse 10 says this. Go back to verse 10 there. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Verse 11 says this, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So when it says where he's standing, it's not that there's anything significant about right or left. It's just simply letting us know this is a real event. This really happened. It's not a dream. It's not a vision. It's an actual happening. An angel appears to Zechariah. What I love about it is just how understated it is. It is very, very, very matter of fact. We know the name of the angel. His name is Gabriel. He's the one who will appear to Mary in Luke chapter 1, and in a few verses, he will be named. A few things about Gabriel, just so uh, you know a little bit about him. He's one of two named good angels in the Bible. So uh, obviously, the most well-known evil angel is Satan, right? Or Lucifer. And then there's uh, Apollyon in Revelation chapter 9, when they opened the abyss, and Apollyon, who's the leader of some really bad dudes, uh, bad demon dudes, he's named. But in the Bible, you have Gabriel, the other named 
angel is Michael. So uh, Michael is the warrior angel. Michael is the only angel who is called an archangel in the Bible. He appears in Daniel chapter 10, and he's battling the prince of Persia. He appears again in uh, Jude verse 9, where he uh, confronts Satan over the body of Moses and rebukes Satan. He appears again in Revelation chapter 12, where he leads the angelic host in throwing Satan out of heaven, an event that's yet to happen. So he is a very powerful angel. He is the only one in the Bible who is called an archangel. Gabriel, uh, second thing about Gabriel, Gabriel appears in Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 9. When Daniel sees him, Daniel faints. Daniel tells us what Gabriel looks like. He says he looks just like a man. Daniel also tells us that he um, flies really fast. So he, wherever he goes, he goes really fast. So Gabriel appears in the Old Testament, Daniel 8, 9. He appears in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1 two times. He appears to Zechariah, and then he appears to Mary. He looks like a man. And finally, number four, he's often called an archangel in tradition. So um, it depends on your theological background. The Bible says there's only one archangel. That's Michael. If you are Lutheran, you believe in three archangels, or their doctrine teaches three archangels, that there's Michael, there's Gabriel, and there's Raphael. If you're Anglican, they have like five. It has an angel named Uriel and another uh, named Jeremiah, I think. Um, you say, where do you get all these names? Catholic uh, dogma teaches there are seven archangels. And I think the Greek Orthodox have eight archangels. So it just depends. Uh, you say, where do they get that? They get that, and this is probably more information than you want to know, but I'm interested, so I assume you're interested. Um, <laughs> There are some intertestamental books, if you're Catholic, you're familiar with them, called the Apocrypha. And they are not viewed as inspired books. They are viewed as extra-biblical books that can give us insight on some things, though again, they don't have the authority spiritually uh, that Scripture or that the Bible has. But in those books, there's a book called uh, the Book of Enoch, and it mentions uh, some of the archangels, and the Book of Tobit, uh, mentions some archangels, and Gabriel is included in those lists. But here is this being, looks like a man, and when Zechariah sees him, just like Daniel, just like Mary, when Mary saw him, Mary was, was uh, quite shocked. When he sees him, verse 12, we read this, Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. So the idea is that um, he is just absolutely frozen. And he is confused. He's like, what in the world is happening? It's very, very typical. When Mary, when Mary sees Gabriel, she is startled and she is afraid. And we know that because, I mean, when he, when he appears to them, um, look at it, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. They always say that because you're afraid. People say, I'd love to see an angel. Well, get ready. Um, you could be confused, startled, and seized with fear. And, uh, but you'd have a story to tell for sure. So here's Gabriel. And he says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. He goes on to say this. Your prayer has 
been heard. See, sometimes we think that because a prayer hasn't been answered, it hasn't been heard. It's not true. And sometimes we give up on an answer that God is yet to deliver. He just has a different timetable than we have. And like Zachariah and Elizabeth, they didn't understand what was at stake. They didn't understand that their son is going to be the forerunner. The baby they prayed for is going to be the one who announces the Messiah. The baby they prayed for, Jesus will say this about John the Baptist. Among those born of women, there's no one greater than him. That'd be worth waiting for, wouldn't it? See, sometimes we're in a hurry, but God is working in a way to do something that is so much bigger. The last thing they would have ever imagined is that their son would be the forerunner of Messiah. The last thing they would have imagined is that he would be the greatest person born up to the time of Jesus. And I don't know what you're waiting for, and I don't know what you've been asking God to do, and I don't know what has happened along the way, but can I just say, some of you thought because it hasn't been answered, your prayer, that it's not going to happen, but be assured, God hears your prayers. We read on in verse 13, and he says this, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to give him the name John. John means uh, gracious gift, or God's gracious gift. It's such a Wonderful name. <laughs> what God was saying was, Zechariah, I'm not only answering your prayer, but I'm giving you a child who will be great in the sight of God, who will announce a Messiah is coming. A Messiah who, or a, a child who will be the fulfillment of every promise I had about sending Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. Read this in verse 14. He'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And many of the people of Israel, he'll bring back to the Lord their God. I mean, talk about an incredible child. And he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he's paraphrasing Malachi chapter 4, and, and Gabriel's making this amazing announcement. I want you to think about this. So here you are, you're a priest. You've, you've, you've been around the things of God all your life. You've been praying for a baby. Your wife's been praying for a baby. And now, at the end of your career, at the pinnacle, if you will, of your career, you're in the temple, you're in a place you've never been, and you're, you're just a few feet from the from the holy of holies and the place where the presence of God is enthroned and all of a sudden there's an angel and the angel says, guess what? Your prayers have been answered and you're going to have a son and he's going to bring you joy and he's going to do this and this and this. What's your response going to be? Very interesting. Look at it. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. 
And my wife is an old lady. I mean, essentially, that's what he's saying. I mean, I like the way the message puts it. It puts it this way. Do you expect me to believe this? That's really truer to what's happening in the original language. Can I just suggest to you that we have to be really careful what we do with our disappointment? We have to be careful about the kind of theological constructs we create in our mind and in our heart to somehow cope with the disappointment, lest we wind up moving from disappointment to unbelief. Listen, I understand. There's a, there, there are some things that happen in life that we will never understand this side of heaven. I get that. And I'm not in any way minimizing the, the circumstances you might have encountered in your life that, that created this great disappointment where you felt you were trusting God and it didn't seem he came through. But what you do with that and how you process that not only in your head, but in your heart, is absolutely critical. Because what happened to Zechariah, I want to suggest to you, the man whose name means God remembers. Let the disappointment fester in his heart to a place where he was filled with unbelief, even when confronted by an angel. It's shocking. I mean, an angel shows up. An angel says, you're going to have a son. And the best he can say is, but I'm married to an old woman. I mean, he could have said, I'm overwhelmed. He could have said, why me? But instead he said, do you expect me to believe that? He's been praying all this while for a child. And now all of a sudden, he's told, your prayer has been answered, and the best he can do. In the original, it's, it's emphatic in the Greek where it says, I'm an old man. And look what Gabriel says. I am Gabriel. <laughs> I stand in the presence of God. I know what I'm talking about. What he's saying is, if I have a message, I got it straight from God himself. And I've been, spent, I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Let me just say this to you. It's not that he wouldn't believe it. It's that he couldn't believe it because of the unbelief that he had become comfortable with in his heart. Be very, very careful about becoming comfortable with unbelief. We walk by faith, not by sight. And I can't understand everything, and I can't explain everything. And I've known times where I was disappointed. But if you camp at the point of your disappointment and go no farther, spiritually or theologically, you are doomed to live in disbelief that will limit your ability to see God move in your life or to experience the joy when he does. 
to Zechariah. Tragic. Verse 20. Gabriel says, and now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. You say, what's, what's going on here? Doubt dies if left unexpressed. And Gabriel is simply saying, Heaven will not let you speak any more words of doubt. You're not going to be able to speak at all. And not only would he not be able to speak, he would not be able to hear. He's lost the ability to talk. He's lost the ability to hear. You say, how do you know that? Verse 62, look at this. They made signs. This is when John is born. They made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Why are they making signs? Because he can't hear what they're saying. So you say, why did God do that? Because if he was going to be so faithless as to not believe, he'd be useless in proclaiming it. So God just shut his mouth. And every day it would be a reminder of the sin of his unbelief. Listen, unbelief is not a casual offense. Unbelief says... I just don't think God can do it. He hasn't, so he won't. And when you do that, you cut yourself off from what God would want to do in you. Not just for you, but in you and in your heart. And when people would ask him about what happened, he'd have to write out, I was made deaf and mute by an angel because I didn't believe when God spoke to me. Verse 21 Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. This would be a matter of real concern. They're not thinking he's seen an angel. Let me just say this. When you come to this moment, what makes this so shocking is for 400 years, God has not spoken. In the intertestamental period, Matthew, Malachi lays down his pen, and by the time Jesus comes, it's been four centuries it's been 500 years since an angel appeared. It's been 800 years, eight centuries, since the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. I want to pause long enough and just say, you know, we're, you know, you might be wondering, why do we always have to stand for the miracles we're seeing? The reason why is because what we're seeing is something that is so breathtaking and so exceptional that the least we can do is give God a standing ovation for all that he is doing. I mean, when you think, when you think, I think it's good. I do think it's good. Praise the Lord. We read on and it says this. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. I mean, how, how, would, you, 
how would you explain in sign language? I mean, some of you are really good at that game gesture, so you probably could do it, but um, how do you explain in sign language? I saw an angel, and I got this incredible word. If you can't, if you don't know sign language or you don't know, you don't have the ability, he's just trying to, to tell them. And then we read about Elizabeth. I love this. And when the time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. I mean, you say, why, why did she do that? Why, why five months? Because everyone knew she was barren. And if she goes out and tells everybody she's pregnant, nobody's going to believe her. They're going to think she's crazy. There's a time for speaking words of faith. In fact, I would say this. Some things won't happen until you and I are bold enough and faithful enough to say them. And God can use that. I was thinking of my little sister who's really had her life spiritually just transformed and, and she has a, a son and a daughter-in-law and he's a doctor and they were told medically conception's not a possibility for you. And the Lord spoke to her heart. They were going to have a baby. So they really were caught up in medical school and everything, not really very involved in the church uh, at all. Or, and, and that was a concern to her. And she told them, she said, listen, I want you to know God is watching over you. And he's told me you're going to have a baby. And when you have that baby, it'll be a sign he's real and that he answers prayer. And they had a little baby a couple months ago and they named him Micah, which is so cool. So there's a place for speaking words of faith. There's also a time when you say, some of you are in a situation where God is doing something in your heart and for you to share it with people isn't the, the atmosphere in which you share would only be met with such aggressive animosity that you'd be well served to be like Elizabeth and to say, I pray things, I know things, and I'll wait on the Lord to make it visible and then I can tell people about my journey. You say, how do I know which to do? Well, the Lord will give you wisdom. But Elizabeth is a very, very wise woman. She says in verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. And that's how the Christmas story begins. Interesting, isn't it? Not a lot of fanfare. No trumpets blowing. No grand announcements. The halls of power in Rome don't know anything about it. It's a very inconspicuous start to the Christmas story that that inconspicuous aspect will continue next week when the king of the universe is born in a manger. What's this saying to us? I want to leave you just with, with three closing thoughts. Number one, our impossibilities are often the places where God does his greatest work. I don't know what your impossibility is, but I know woven into the Christmas story is a very basic truth. Luke chapter 1 and verse 37 says this, for nothing is impossible with God. Maybe this morning you're facing something and you're saying, I don't know how it would happen. It's impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. In a few moments, we're going to pray that God would 
invade the impossibility in your life, that circumstance, and do the impossible in a way that you would never forget and would be a testimony to people around you of his power to do those things. Second, this story tells me God's delays are not necessarily his denials. It's a big difference between God saying wait and God saying no. And some of you thought the delay was him denying your request when nothing could be farther from the truth. And I'm just simply saying that God is a God who answers prayer and he's a God who hears prayer and don't give up. Some of you are like this close to getting your answer. Don't stop now. Number three, it's during our time in God's presence that we receive insight and answers from God. Now listen, I'll be the first to tell you that in your own quiet time with the Lord, God can speak to you. But I also think we have to be careful that we don't buy into the foolishness that says, I am the church, so I don't need the church. That's nonsense. Church itself, it's, it's the ecclesia, it's the gathering, it's the assembling of God's people together. And some things only happen here that won't happen somewhere else. There are some healings that will only happen in this place. I, I'm not limiting what God can do out of this place. I'm just saying there is a, an accumulated grace and faith in this room that brings healing to people in exceptional ways. We've seen it. And so we need our alone time with God, but we need our corporate time. And some of you, even today, God is speaking to your heart. He's, he's working in your heart. You can sense his presence. You can feel him talking to you. He's drawing you to himself. He's speaking to you about your impossibility. Maybe today you're seeing yourself in Zachariah and Elizabeth's situation and you're saying we can't have a baby and, and we want a baby. And I'm telling you, we've seen miracle after miracle of people who have received who were told they couldn't. And they conceived a baby. And let, your, let faith rise in your heart that the God who does the impossible can do impossible things in your life, and you made the right choice. You're here today. There's, there's something about being in his presence, whether it's here, whether it's the Wednesday night prayer meeting, or both, I would suggest. Powerful things happen. And I just want to remind you, God delights to show himself powerful in your life. 